Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Meaning we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. And hey there, I am your mad prophet of the airwaves and welcome once again to Radio Free Canada, news notes and opinions from the underground for Monday, July the 18th. I was at the Honda Indy yesterday with my two boys. And they, they loved it. They loved it. I mean, what 15-year-old boy doesn't love fast cars? Very fast cars. I must say, I, I, I'm not a big car lover, but I did, I enjoyed the spectacle. I mean, seeing those incredible machines whip through the hairpin turns and then open it up on the straightaways, very, very intense. Uh, I know nothing about Indy racing or Formula One or NASCAR. I couldn't even tell you the difference. Someone asked me, what did you think? I said, very fast and very loud. Now, something else noteworthy at the uh, Honda Indy that caught my attention. I left the race, the track, to get some something to eat. And while I'm waiting in line at a food truck, I'm watching this woman with rapt fascination. She's maybe 35, 40 sitting down at a table, outdoors, mind you, outdoors. It looked like she was eating sushi. I say that because the food food truck next to her table was a sushi vendor. In any event, this woman was wearing a mask, outdoors, while eating. She, she lowered her mask just long enough to put a fork full of food into her mouth. Then she raised the mask over her mouth while she chewed. And then when, he, when she finished chewing and swallowing, she lowered her mask and repeated the process. 
It was absolutely fascinating to watch, almost as fascinating as watching the indie itself. And as I'm watching this poor, brainwashed, frightened woman, I thought a couple of things. First, I thought, well, there's your typical CBC news viewer or typical global news viewer. And secondly, I thought, how on earth, how on earth did we as a species ever survive to this point? Now, this, this, on the other hand, is heartening news. An Angus Reid survey has found that about 60% of Canadians, 60, 60, who have received their first or second COVID vaccine are not likely to take another, again, according to an Angus Reid survey. And this is important because the federal government and Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos is, is trying to redefine what fully vaccinated means. They want to replace the term fully vaccinated with up-to-date. You're up-to-date with your vaccines, meaning you can never be fully vaccinated because you'll have to continue to take a booster shot every nine months forever. So breaking down the responses by doses received, those with one or two those who have received one or two doses were far less likely to want a booster when it became available. Nearly 60% saying they would not get another shot. Only 17% said they would, though an additional 26% remained non-committal on either side. So interest in each booster will continue to wane. More and more doses will sit on the shelf and expire. Remember, we're on the hook for these. These were pre-ordered. They're paid for. They'll sit on the shelf. They'll expire and be offered to some developing country, which will also say, no thanks. And millions upon millions of doses will be tossed into the garbage. This is great news as far as I'm concerned. Now, good on the Toronto Sun. Good on the Toronto Sun for reporting this. Because very few mainstream news media outlets in Canada would ever consider reporting on this next item. Even in the United States, very few outlets would report on this. And I'm talking about the fact that guns in the hands of lawful gun owners, properly trained gun owners, is a good thing. And that lives are saved as a result. The mainstream media only want you to hear about crazed individuals who somehow get their hands on weapons and then kill, in some cases, dozens of people. They don't want to report on the fact that sometimes these mass shooters are stopped, quite literally, dead in their tracks by a lawful gun owner. Here's another example of this, and again, good on the Toronto Sun for reporting this. Now, this took place in Greenwood, Indiana. Three people fatally shot, two were injured on Sunday at, a, at an Indiana mall after a man with a rifle opened fire in a food court. But an armed civilian shot and killed him, according to police. The shooter entered the Greenwood Paul, uh, Park Mall with a rifle and several magazines of ammunition and began firing in the food court. A 22-year-old from nearby Bartholomew County, who was legally carrying a firearm at the mall, shot and killed the gunman. Four of those hit by gunfire were females. One was a male. 
we don't know the specific, uh, the, the sex or the age of those who were killed. A 12-year-old girl was among the two injured. Both those injured are in stable condition. Yes, guns can take innocent lives, but they also save many, many, many innocent lives. How many people at that Indiana shopping mall would have been killed if it weren't for that 22-year-old man carrying a legal firearm? There could have been dozens and dozens killed. Who knows how long it would have taken for the police to arrive? And once they did arrive, how would they have reacted? Would they have waited outside for precious minutes like the police in Uvalde, Texas? Again, concealed weapons in the hands of responsible, properly trained civilians, men and women, is a good thing. It saves lives. Here's just a couple of examples I just found online in preparing for the show. These are lives likely saved because of legally owned guns. Actually, these, uh, these examples involve the AR-15, which is a great weapon for self-defense. It's the preferred weapon of self-defense because it's fairly easy to handle. There's no kickback. So in Rochester, New York, 2013, two armed burglars retreated from a college student's apartment after coming face-to-face with an unloaded AR-15. In other words, the rifle itself instilled, instilled fear, enough fear to cause them to flee. Ferguson, Missouri, 2014. This was during the... Uh, no, this was before the Brown riots. Actually, no. Uh, let me see here. Uh, during the Ferguson, Missouri riots, nearly all businesses within a particular two-square-mile area of the city were looted or destroyed, except for one. Yes, this was during the riots. All of the businesses, nearly all of the businesses within a two-square-mile area of the city were looted or destroyed except for one. African-American men guarded the gas station and convenience store of a white friend from looters and rioters. They did so armed with an AR-15. Houston, Texas, 2017. A target of a drive-by shooting successfully fended off the attack by using his legally owned AR-15 against his three armed attackers. He was able to hit all three men in the moving vehicle. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, 2017. A target of a drive-by shooting success... Uh, oh, that's the same story. Sorry. Uh, broken, yeah, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, 2017. A homeowner's 19-year-old son used an AR-15 to defend himself against three would-be burglars who broke into the home in broad daylight. The 19-year-old was later de- determined to have acted in justifiable self-defense. Oshwiga, Illinois, 2018, a man with an AR-15 intervened to stop a neighbor's knife attack on a pregnant woman. The rifle's intimidation factor was credited as a reason why the attacker dropped his knife. Catawaba, Catawba, Catawba County, Illinois, 2018, after his 17-year-old relative successfully used his own firearm to fend off three would-be robbers who attacked him in the driveway of his home, A man used his AR-15 to stop a threat from one of the would-be robbers um, who had beset upon family members. There you go. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But I won't. Another time. Coming up on today's show, health experts and staff are fleeing the CDC and the National Institutes of Health in the United States. The reason they're quitting en masse will shock you. Art Moore 
from WND. We'll be here second hour with that story. And Art will also talk about the latest study that shows a plausible or a possible connection between the COVID booster and a startling spike in excess deaths. Stefan Verstappen is the survivalist. He joins us every Monday, author of The Art of Urban Survival. He'll be here to talk about forming neighborhood watch groups. But first, I must be psychic. Last Friday, I think it was, I was talking about the level of incompetence at all levels of government in this country and how they all fail miserably when it comes to delivering basic services. The country is broken, I said. The country is broken. Well, writing in today's National Post, Aaron Woodrick from the McDonald Laurier Institute saying exactly this. Government failures are among the case, or sorry, government failures are making the case for focusing on core competencies. That's the headline. He'll be here next to discuss the Richard Serrett Show off and running for Monday, July 18th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, before we get into this discussion about whether Canada is broken, this idea that none of the three levels of government in this country seem to be able to deliver on basic services from the McDonald Laurier Institute. Writing in the uh, National Post, Aaron Woodrick, who is the Director of Domestic Policy Programs at the McDonald Laurier Institute, asking the question, is Canada broken? And why is it that our levels of government, three levels of government, can't seem to deliver on basic promises? The problem, he says, is they're taking on too much. They need to focus on their core competencies. Aaron, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm well, Richard. How are you doing? I'm very well. I know you said it depends on, or you wrote in the article, it really depends on who you ask, ideologically speaking, I suppose, whether the country is broken. But let me ask you, ideologically speaking, if you will, is the country broken? Well, uh, first thing I would say is I like to make a distinction between the country and government. I find it interesting when some people conflate the two, right? Uh, They sort of assume if government is broken, it means the country is broken. I don't think Canada is broken. I don't think Canadian people are broken. I think our institutions, which include government, are struggling under the weight of a thousand different priorities. I think that they are stretched beyond their limits. And as a result, they're trying to do too many things and they're not doing anything well. And that's why people are getting very frustrated with them is that they're trying to do everything, succeeding at nothing. Um, and that has the perverse effect of everyone starting to question whether these institutions can function at all. Right. So I guess the, the one of the obvious uh, examples would be healthcare, And we had last week, we had the premiers, 13 of them, including the territorial leaders, all huddling together and, and talking about, you know, how to fix this mess. At the same time, we had a uh, an elderly gentleman who passed away in a New Brunswick emergency room. He'd been sitting there for hours in a wheelchair, seemingly unattended. He died while waiting for care. We had the case in uh, southwestern Ontario of a, I believe it's down near Wyerton. I could be wrong about that, but he was uh, a gentleman who basically in a biking accident, he shattered his leg and he sat in a, this dank and dark uh, repurposed uh, hospital room off a hallway for something like four days before he got his leg taken care of. Yeah. So let's start with, with, with healthcare. I mean, here's a, here's a problem, you know, that um, has just been going on for, for decades and decades and decades. We can't seem to fix it. Whose core competency should that be? The federal government's or, I mean, according to the constitution, it, it's the province's responsibility. 
Yeah, look, the Constitution is clear. It's a provincial responsibility in terms of delivery. Now, historically, in terms of who pays for it, that's where things have got sticky. The federal government used to carry half the cost. They've carried less. So that's where this uh, argument starts, right, is the premiers, unsurprisingly, can all agree they want more money from Ottawa. So skin off their nose to ask for it. Ottawa says, well, we'll give you more money, but we want strings attached. And the premiers say, well, no, I mean, we know what we want to do. Just give us the money. And you get this. They go round and round in circles. Nothing gets fixed. Um, you know, the pandemic has, has exposed this uh, to, I think, a far wider swath of Canadians who've come into contact with the system, can't get a family doctor, get stuck in a waiting room like the stories you've told for, for sometimes days on end. But healthcare, to me, uh, Richard, is just an example of a core competency that no government can get right. And yet you have, I mean, if we can't, if we can't sort out long wait lists, if we can't sort out uh, screenings or, or, or surgeries. Why do we have government always coming up with new things they can do? Why don't they say, you know what? We're not even going to take anything new on. We're just going to worry about the things we can't do well and get those fixed first. I think, as I made the point in the piece, in any other organization, that would just sort of be assumed, right? Like if you're if you're not doing what your uh, your main focus is and you're not doing it well, you don't start piling on new responsibilities. And yet, that's what we see constantly with governments of all ideological stripe. To be honest, uh, of all party stripe, they all they all make promises and then they don't fall through on delivery, and we kind of get this layer upon layer mission creep um and, and 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 the result is less and less trust in government because nothing gets done right in, fa- in fact in the second hour uh one of your colleagues at the mcdonald laurier institute uh, melissa embarkey will be here and uh you know she was bemoaning this very fact over the um uh, well last week actually on twitter when the federal government was kind of bragging on social media about delivering, quote, life-saving aid to Ukraine and sub-Saharan Africa. And Melissa, I think, rightfully pointed out, wait a minute, no one uses the term life-saving when, it, when, when we're talking about delivering clean, safe drinking water to our indigenous communities. Uh, here's another example. You know, one of the most basic services that we, we should all be taking for granted, having uh, access to clean water. We can't even get that right in this country. Well, um, Aaron, we'll take a quick time out. I'll get you to, uh, to talk about that and uh, some other matters here uh, when we come back. Aaron Woodrick is with us writing in the uh, National Post today, and uh, he is the uh, director of domestic policy programs at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Back with more of our conversation in about three minutes. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Welcome back. Aaron Woodrick is with us, Director of Domestic Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, uh, the website, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Writing in the National Post, he writes... It really should not be controversial to suggest that any organization that is not doing a very good job fulfilling its current duties should probably pause before adding to its to-do list. Before the break, Aaron, I was talking about your uh, colleague, um, Melissa Mbarki, at the McDonald laurier Institute, and uh, she's also a member of the muskoka Wequan uh, First Nation, and she was... More than a little ticked off, I think justifiably so, the federal government last week tweeting about, you know, how they were delivering life-saving aid to uh, sub-Saharan Africa, which is important, but and, and also Ukraine, which, you know, we can all support, except they can't even deliver on the most basic service of making sure that everyone in this country has potable uh, water. Um and again, I mean, that's another huge Gordian knot, it seems. Who's supposed to be delivering fresh or making sure that uh, everyone has fresh drinking water? 
Well, yeah, that's clearly a federal responsibility. And I think, you know, Melissa's got a particular perspective there, understandably, given that she has experienced firsthand in a lot of cases and people she knows that the the failure of government in those cases isn't even something like for you and I, you know, uh, waiting for a passport or, for example, waiting in line at an airport. That's that's annoying. But imagine if you you don't have clean drinking water. I mean, that's pretty serious stuff. And so it can imagine you can imagine how frustrating you see governments constantly announcing new things, new things they want to do, new things they want to try and solve when they haven't even solved the old things. And that's, I think, you know, to be fair, Richard, there's a there's an unfortunate political incentive here. Governments get a lot of credit for announcing things. They don't get as much credit for following through on them. And so what you have is governments, they, they see the incentive is to announce things and then just hope that it's sort of forgotten over time and then there's no follow-up. And, but as I say, that, that might you might be able to get away with that politically in the short term. In the long term, it does tremendous damage to trust in uh, in governments and and you know faith that they're able to do anything well, what, yeah, what is the danger there when we when we say when we talk about well we've lost, we're losing faith in our institutions uh, I mean what is uh, for practical uh, or in practical terms what what is the what is the danger there when we lose faith in our levels of government to deliver basic services, for example? Well, first of all, I think people lose hope. I think people get upset. I think people start to think of uh, very extreme and dangerous solutions to problems, right? I mean, the whole idea behind a democratic solution is it's peaceful. We all get together, we debate things, and then we choose an option and we go with it. And if people start to feel that uh, no matter who they choose, nothing is ever going to get fixed, I think people start to contemplate dangerous solutions. And that's that's bad for everyone. Um, So I, I really think politicians need to think beyond the next election, beyond their support right now, because the damage that's done, you know, if, if if people start to think that it's not just the government of today, but every politician, no matter who they are, um, it, it can't be trusted and won't fix anything, uh, you kind of undermine the, 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 the trust that's necessary for, for democracy to function properly. So what, I mean, it's a ridiculous question to ask you to respond to in three and a half minutes, but I mean, how do we... How do we right this ship? Is it is it a matter of, I don't know, radical decentralization, kind of the, I guess it was kind of Joe Clark's vision of Canada, and Max Bernier has been sort of sounding off in a similar way, tr- time to give more power to the provinces so that the federal government basically would be left to do less? Well, look, healthcare in particular, I think, could be solved um, somewhat by letting the federal government, if the federal government took the straight jacket off the provinces, they, they attach a lot of strings to the money that goes to the provinces. Uh, but I, I, I do understand the federal government's concern that there's no accountability. So what I and others have proposed is that you simply transfer the tax power to the provinces. So they, they can raise the money, but they're accountable for it. But then they have the money um, and let the provinces experiment. So healthcare in particular, I think um, getting rid of the blurring of lines of responsibility could go a long way. Beyond that, I think it's just going to take some politicians and some governments to to be honest with the public and say, look, we know there's a million problems in society, but here are the ones we're going to prioritize. And we're going to pour all our efforts into these things and it has to be a relatively short list. Uh, And if they make headway on those, then you turn your attention to the next things. Uh, The temptation right now has been to have everything as your number one priority. And that, that has got us into the mess that we're in right now. Can you give me a couple of examples of things that are happening, let's say, federally, where I mean, the government really should be focused again on what you call the core competencies, but because of mission uh, drift, uh, they seem to be focused on other things. What are those other things? 
Yeah, uh, well, I mean, they uh, they make announcements all the time about new things they want to regulate. For example, they've, they've, the government of Canada is, is proposing to regulate uh, the Internet uh, in all sorts of ways, cultural content, news content, online hate. I mean, this is just a, I mean, it's a gigantic job. You can imagine the size of the bureaucracy that would be necessary. I mean, and this is a this is an agency that uh, that. That, that can barely manage regulating television. So imagine trying to regulate internet. So that's just one example of something that government uh, really should not be focusing its attention on when it's got a lot of other problems to solve. Aaron Woodrick, Director of Domestic Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Great article. Thanks a lot, Richard. All right. When we come back, you know, every every Monday we set a time we set aside a little bit of time. We call it the survivalist. Stefan Verstappen is an emergency preparedness expert. He's the author of the Art of of Urban Survival. We've been talking about how to uh, store uh, clean drinking water, how to store food, how to form communities. Today, we're going to discuss neighborhood watch programs. I know you've all seen the signs. Do they still do that? They used to have the, the signs in people's uh, living room windows. You would see, you know, this is a neighborhood watch home. Do they still do that? I don't know. I don't see. Declan is saying yes. Well, it's time to bring that back. The neighborhood watch program. I'm not sure if uh, the one that we were familiar with is the, the same one that Stefan Verstappen has in mind. But we will find out when he joins us next. The Survivalist right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. The Survivalist on The Richard Serrett Show. Time to prepare. Before the lights go out, folks, before all hell breaks loose, store up on essentials. Stefan Verstappen is our emergency preparedness expert, the author of The Art of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com and FormingCommunities.com. Stefan, welcome back. How was your weekend? It was pretty good, Richard. How was yours? Very well. Very good. Went to the uh, the Honda Indy and... Um, did a little bit of work, but uh, no, good time was had by all. Thank you. You were racing? <laughs> I'm always racing. Yeah, no, I was part of the pit crew. That's <laughs> 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 Took my 15-year-old boys, and they had a great time. Oh, I mean, that's what, great. Yeah. What 15-year-old doesn't love fast cars? Yeah, I used to sell popcorn at the Pinecrest Speedway. <laughs> when I was 12. <laughs> there you go. Memories. All right. Now, I was saying, um, I was talking about, you know, the old neighborhood watch program, and we used to see these signs. You'd walk around in somebody's neighborhood, you'd see a, a little cardboard sign in their front window that said that they were a member of the neighborhood watch program. Are you talking about the same type of neighborhood watch program, or is this something different? No, it's the same neighborhood watch program, but I think you're confusing it with the block parent. Because neighborhood watch, you don't really want to put a sign in your window because that will alert criminals that you're you know, keeping an eye on things and you don't want the criminals to target you. So Block Parent is a really good organization as well. And uh, Block Parents will put a sign in their window 
that says block parents. And that's for, you know, children that are lost or injured or they're afraid or their parents are, have disappeared and left them alone and they want somewhere to go that's safe. Then they know, you know, Uncle Bob's house, three doors down, he's a block parent. You can go there and he'll take you in and he'll look for your parents and if need be reported to the police. Neighborhood Watch is different in that you don't actually open your home to people. And also, it's not to be confused with any kind of vigilante type organization, such as Citizens on Patrol or the Guardian Angels that they had there in in New York City for a while. So you do not get involved in crime stopping yourself what it is is an association of neighbors you set up an organization you set up communications you work fairly closely with the local police department and your job is merely to keep an eye on things when you see things that aren't right then you will have a number to call usually crime stoppers and or if it seems to be more serious than that then you can call 911 so where i sit here i'm I, I, my office is in my bedroom my bedroom is in my office one or the other and uh, i look out the window And I look out onto all the buildings in front of me and I see everything that's going on around here. And now if I were to see somebody that I don't recognize and he looks like he's breaking through the window of my neighbor's house, then that's when I call 911. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. A change of seasons means adventures in rain, shine, mist, or snow or all of the above on the same day. This season, prepare for every season with the Allbirds Mizzle Collection. With all-conditioned traction and materials and features to keep you comfy and dry no matter what, you'll be ready for anything. Go to allbirds.com and use code FRESHSOCKS for a free pair of socks with your purchase. A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code FRESHSOCKS. And, um... So it's a way of keeping the community safe, and it's actually a very effective program. I just read a state a case study, and it's in my upcoming book, The Complete Guide to Forming Communities, a case study out of Edinburgh. And um, this gentleman, he was a warehouse worker. He was, you know, middle-aged. The, the, the neighborhood he was living in was getting run down, like so many neighborhoods are. The shops have closed down. The warehouses are empty. Uh, the seniors that live in that neighborhood were starting to get nervous about walking along the street at night. There was more graffiti and vandalism and open drug dealing on the streets. 
and he formed a community watch program and he got to know all his neighbors. And here's one of the key components of doing something like this. One of the first things you need to do when you form a, a neighborhood watch a community is get to know your neighbors. Now, Richard, you and I have talked about this. We know how important it is to form a community to survive what's coming. And to me, it doesn't really matter what kind of community you form. I would personally like everybody to form a survivalist community where, you know, everybody is armed and medically trained and has two years supply of food and all that. You know what? I've tried for 10 years. I know other people have tried for many, many years to form such a community ain't happening. I know of only one community that started off that way. And that was that's that's my my friends there in Arizona. Nobody else can do it because it scares too many people. You can't go to your neighbor and say, look, um, you know, we're facing a grand famine here. There's going to be total chaos and the collapse of civilization. Let's to get together and and survive this. First of all, they think you're a conspiracy theorist and then you're paranoid. And Right. Yeah, it is scary. It's like, yeah, hey, come on over to our house and let's plan for the end of the world. And don't forget, uh, don't forget uh, we have bridge on Saturday. You know, it's, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, particularly savory. No, but what I tell people is it, it's Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War, says this. You put your men your army in danger and they will fight harder together. But first of all, you need the army. So you need some kind of community, even something as innocent as a homeschooling community. You know, because you belong to a homeschooling community, that if things really start to get bad, you can call the other members of that community and say, listen, um, we're running low on food. We'd like to barter. I got extra rice. Do you have any eggs? Do we have any vegetables? Do we have any medicine? And you know that you can rely on those people to do what they can do, even though they're not trained for it, even though you didn't form the community with that in mind. Once things start to get really ugly, you'll be able to, you know, at least have some people that you know right. that you already work with that you can contact and say, what can we do to okay, together? Okay, I got to jump in here. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss forming a neighborhood watch program. Stefan Verstappen, an emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival, The Survivalist, right here on The Richard Serrett Show. More in a moment. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. We're talking about forming neighborhood watch communities or programs. And Stefan Verstappen is with us, the uh, author of The Art of Servant, uh, Urban Survival, The Art of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com and FormingCommunities.com, the websites, Neighborhood Watch Programs. Um, so we were, you were talking about this, uh, this case study. In Edinburgh. So in Edinburgh, yeah. The neighborhood was kind of uh, going downhill, like the Esplanade in Toronto, but that's another story. Anyway. Oh, really? I used to like the Esplanade. I used to go there all the time. Anyways, yeah, so that, that that happens. But it was a great success. What they did was they, first of all, they made the people feel safer. They could, they uh, petitioned to the uh, the police department to offer more street patrols, more police cars to come and patrol the neighborhood. Then they got the, uh, the city to install more street lights, more lighting. Then they got volunteer organizations to go around and clean up all the graffiti and, and to board up all the broken windows in the old warehouses. And because all the people started to get to know each other because now they're working together so you know who your neighbors are that 
people felt more uh, felt safer to go out onto the streets. And so they were able to bring this community from the brink of disaster back to where it was. Uh, and they even got the city to put in landscaping and, and, and so they could take pride in the community, you know, plant flower pots and things like that. So it's more than just being like a snitch. It's it's working together with the community to make it safer and happier and healthier for everybody involved. So it's really a good program. And it's very simple to start. Just print up some flyers and hand it out to your neighbors, okay? Try and get about 20, 30 people together in your area. To do this, you may have to knock on some doors and, and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm, I'm Richard Surrett. I'm thinking of setting up a neighborhood watch community in our neighborhood, which is two, three blocks, whatever it is. And would you be interested in coming to a meeting? Then we schedule a meeting. Uh, here we have the, the Canadian Legion. They have meeting rooms. Uh, I can probably get one for, for no cost at all for something that's a civic duty. The local police department will have a coordinator. It's a neighborhood watch coordinator, and they'll work with you. And they'll send somebody to your meeting and they'll explain how it all works. They'll give you like a, a one hour, it's about an hour, hour and a half maximum uh, seminar on how to report crime and what to look for and what phone numbers to call, when to call 911 and when to call uh, um, crime stoppers, you know, depending on the situation. They'll also tell you how to harden your targets, uh, meaning your home, how to make sure your home is safe as well. The locks you should do, whether or not you should remove some of the bushes around the front door so you get a whole uh, you'll get some training you'll get a, a way of communicating with the police and with the other members of the neighborhood watch um when i lived there in etobicoke in mimico um there was a neighborhood watch that had a facebook page which was really quite helpful you go on that facebook page and they will post alerts and pictures of things that went on in the neighborhood that you would never hear about on the news or anything like that. For example, there was some gentleman running around Hyde Park that was going after the girls and harassing them sexually, and they had a photo of him. So I lived very close to Hyde Park. I went there often, and I kept an eye out for this guy. I know what he looks like. You know, if I saw him, I would call the police and say, listen, this is the guy everybody's looking for. This is, you know, to get these people off the streets. So it's a good idea. Now, are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. 
Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is in times of peace, okay? So you are just my, you are just trying to make it a better neighborhood. You get to know your neighbors and you get to do a little bit of civic improvement. All great stuff. Now, what is going to happen? Because last week we talked about the dangers we face, the first one being a mass famine. And that's why we talked about food co-ops and uh, growing co-ops so that you can start to grow your own food. And the next big danger is going to be crime. If we do face a famine and if we do face a financial collapse, then crime will go through the roof. Crime is already increasing all over North America, the United States, Canada, crime is already increasing as it is. We haven't even gotten to the worst of it yet. Now, when it does get down to the worst, police won't be there. Uh, many studies have been done to show and prove decisively since the 1960s that police do not prevent crime. Police are only a deterrent to criminals who may think twice because if they got caught and then they get sentenced, but police actually don't stop crime. Even if you dump, uh, double the number of street patrols, it usually doesn't make any difference. And if we are looking at a situation where the police won't, I mean, they don't can hardly do anything right now. And during a chaos, a social upheaval, where are they going to be? They can't do anything now. What are they going to do then? So it's going to be up to you to protect yourself and to protect your community. Now, if you've already formed a neighborhood watch and everything goes to pot, then that neighborhood watch morphs, it adapts, it it evolves into a vigilante group, okay? Then, because you, you can't expect the police to come, then we have a group of guys, you already know them through the neighborhood watch, you try and select the toughest men in the group, and you form your own vigilante uh, police service. And by the way, the very first police force in North America was established in Boston in 1631, and they were called the Watchers, and they were just that. They were a local community, vigilantes that would stop crime. And so we can go back to what our ancestors did, form our own police forces, in a, in, in a sense, it's a police force, and we can use that to protect our communities. There you go. All right, great advice once again from Stefan Verstappen, the author of The Arts of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com and FormingCommunities.com. Stefan, you have a great rest of the week. We'll be back on Monday to discuss more. Great. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right. We have uh, another solid hour of programming coming your way. We'll um, revisit an earlier conversation with Ali Cantenantel, journalist at True North. Um, I spoke with him last Thursday, and uh, this was about Mayor Patrick Brown of uh, Brampton uh, and some, some allegations uh, that uh, there have been some financial improprieties, let's say. Uh, we're going to replay that conversation in light of the fact that uh, Mayor Brown has just announced he will be seeking re-election. He's not going to pursue, obviously, uh, appealing his DQing de from the Conservative Party of Canada. So he's going to focus on becoming mayor of Brampton again. So we'll revisit that conversation. Art Moore 
author at World Net Daily, or WND, we should say. That's the old name, World Net Daily. WND. And we'll talk about a couple of stories. One, health experts. Health experts at the Centers for Disease Control and also the National Institutes of Health in the United States, they're quitting. And the reason will likely shock you. And Art will also discuss a new study tying the COVID booster shot to a startling spike in excess deaths. Uh, But coming up next, right after the news, at the top of the hour, Melissa Embarkey, policy analyst, outreach coordinator, and indigenous policy program at the McDonald Laurier Institute will be here last week on Twitter. uh, She was uh, a little uh, ticked off, to say the least. The uh, minister of... Uh, I believe it's uh, foreign development. His name is Sergeant Hagen. He was kind of boasting about the federal government's life-saving aid to sub-Saharan Africa and Ukraine. And Melissa thought to herself or was tweeting, they never use that term life-saving when they're talking about, you know, drinking water uh, in our indigenous communities and how so many of our indigenous communities do not have access to proper drinking water. So we'll uh, talk to Melissa Embarkey about that. All right, stay tuned. The Richard Serrett Show continues right after these. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. Welcome to Hour 2. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still, plenty of great programming coming your way this hour, including we'll revisit a conversation from last week with True North journalist Elie Cantin-Nantel about Mayor Patrick Brown and the allegations of financial shenanigans coming from at least four city councillors. And I think it's timely that we uh, replay this. He's uh, Patrick Brown has announced he's seeking re-election as mayor. So he has uh, given up uh, any hope of appealing, I guess, the uh, decision by the Conservative Party of Canada to disqualify him from the leadership race. Uh, And then Art Moore, author at WND, will be here. A couple of um, interesting stories. He'll discuss health experts at the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health in the United States. Health experts are quitting en masse, and you'll uh, likely be shocked by the reason. has to do with bad science. Just a little uh, tease there. Art Moore will also discuss a new study tying the COVID booster shot to startli- a startling spike in excess deaths. 
So last week, the Federal Minister of International Development, Harjit Sajjan, tweeted this out. We raised money for the important humanitarian situation in Ukraine. Let's not forget the millions now facing famine in Africa. Donate to Canada's humanitarian fund and we will match you dollar for dollar to provide life-saving aid to those in dire need in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, just a little, <laughs> just a little uh, side uh, trip here. We'll match you dollar for dollar. So you donate money for foreign aid and then we'll match your money with more of your money. It's all coming from the taxpayer. Anyway, that tweet from Harjit Sajjan uh, struck a, uh, a negative chord with Melissa Embarki, who joins us now. Melissa is a policy analyst, outreach coordinator, indigenous policy program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And she's also a member of the Muscoquan uh, uh, First Nation. Melissa, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for having me back, Richard. What was it about Harjit Sajjan's uh, tweet about all of this money going to sub-Saharan Africa and Ukraine had you upset? I, you know, I'm a humanitarian. You know, I believe in helping other countries. You know, I believe in sending aid to those who need it the most. What really bothered me about this tweet was that we have reserves in Canada that have no clean water. You know, we should be taking care of our people first before we're helping other countries with water. And, you know, on in his tweet, he had a picture of a water truck. And it just struck a nerve with me, especially when we have communities that are struggling to have clean water today. Right. And he used the term life-saving humanitarian aid, which, as you pointed out, the, the, the government doesn't use life-saving that ter- that term when it comes to indigenous indigenous Canadians. Not at all, and it is life-saving. You know, I I experienced a water you know living under a boil water advisory when I was younger, and what this did to me health-wise um, impact impacted me today. You know, I was on antibiotics for about six years because nobody could figure out what the heck was going on. I had skin rashes. I had skin issues. And it was just a never ending um, cycle of just pain because these are pretty painful. And when chiefs post, you know, when they post pictures of their community members, especially children with these same rashes that I had, you know, it's very angering. And I just honestly cannot believe that we still have this issue happening today. Uh, Six months or sorry, six years on antibiotics, six years. What uh, what I don't you know, want to delve too, in, too deep into your personal medical history, but being on antibiotics for six years, what, what does that do to your immune system? Now, today, um, what that did is that I, um, I'm resistant to certain antibiotics. So when I do get sick and I do get an infection, I'm going through a cocktail of antibiotics to figure out which one will work for me. And that's just the long-term effect of, you know, living through a boil water advisory. Another one, um, you know, another thing that I'm left with are scars on my body because these rashes leave scars and it not only left a physical scar, but it left an emotional scar as well. Like even to this day, I don't trust the water that I drink from the tap. 
I still have and I still use bottled water. Like that's just how bad it impacts a person that has to live through this. The Muskowakwan um, nation, is it still, are, are, are the people there still living under a boil water advisory? No, um, it actually, in 2014-2015, the plant itself had undergone a filtration change. And, you know, this gave the community clean water and, you know, it's it, it drastically improved the quality of it. What we're seeing now, um, and we may be going on another water advisory, is I think we have to drill a new well. You know, they've been rationing water for the last couple of years. And, you know, I think where they had originally drilled is now dried up. So they now have to look for another water source. Um, You know, these are the continual problems that we face. And if a city like Edmonton had, you know, a similar experience, this would be fixed within a week. I, I would give it three days. And, you know, there's no sense of urgency for First Nations reserves at all. And we need to bring more awareness out there because these issues aren't getting fixed. They're actually escalating into bigger ones as the years go by. How many um, Indigenous communities do we know? How many are currently living under a boil water advisory? So right now, if you go onto IFC's website, they will give you a list of the Indigenous communities excluding BC. For some reason, BC has a different water advisory. So here's the thing that's tricky with that list. If the communities have a water source, like if they're getting um, blue jugs or if they're getting bottled water every week, they won't be on that list because they have access to water. Now, if they absolutely did not have access to water and they were taking it out of the river or, you know, they were collecting rainwater, then they would be on that list. So that list is a little misleading. Um, You know, it shows that there's only 34 communities or 34 advisories now today, but there could potentially be a lot more that are out there that should be on that list and aren't. In other words, there are there are more than the 34 communities. There are communities, indigenous communities that have no access to on site, let's say, safe drinking water. So they have to they have to ship in bottled water, jugs of water. Yes, that's what they have to do. And there's some communities in Ontario where they, um, you know, they drink their river water. And, um, you know, and they they make sure that they collect enough for the winter months or at least for a couple of months until they get their shipments of water in. There was a story that was just shared um, from a First Nations community in Ontario where one of the women, um, you know, she had her first shower in eight months. Like that's how bad the water situation is. It's not even safe. to. I mean, never mind drink. You can't even clean yourself with it. Exactly. And, you know, going through this pandemic, you would have thought this would have put some urgency in the federal government and and, and have them call it life-saving, but they haven't, you know, and it, they just keep ignoring the issues, hoping they'll go away when, in fact, they get worse over time. Meanwhile, we have billions of dollars going out the back door, shoveled out the back door uh, for places like Ukraine and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and yes, while we all agree that we need to try and you know help people in developing countries, we have thousands and thousands of Indigenous people in our country 
Canadians who don't even have access, never mind just safe drinking water. They, it's so dirty. It's so toxic. They can't even take a shower. This should be a national outrage. It is. It's a stain uh, on our country. Uh, Melissa, hold on a little bit. I'd like to, uh, to, to delve further into this. Uh, would you be okay to, to hang on for another segment? Yep, for sure. All right. Melissa Embarkey, Policy Analyst, Outreach Coordinator, Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute, a member of the Muskoquan First Nation. We'll be back with more of our conversation right after these. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Before I get back to my conversation with Melissa Embarkey about the lack of access to safe drinking water in this country for our indigenous communities. You know, we've got uh, inflation in this country, 40-year highs, economic stagflation on the horizon. Melissa Embarkey stays with us. Uh, last week, Harjit Sajan, the Federal Minister of International Development, was boasting about all of the billions of dollars Canada is sending to Ukraine and sub-Saharan Africa for, quote-unquote, life-saving aid, which led Melissa to wonder, well, why don't they ever, they, the government, ever use that term life-saving with respect to our Indigenous communities and the lack of access to safe drinking water? Now, in your tweet, you were, um, you were mentioning some of these uh, communities are dependent on cisterns. Uh, they're, they're not piping in water. They, they have cisterns. And you mentioned here there's a, a case of who was had to pull a dead cat out of their grandparent cistern? Was that you? Yes. Um, so with our cisterns, um, there's no, I'm going to say yearly uh, maintenance on them. Like nobody comes in and cleans them professionally. So it was kind of left to the, you know, people living in the homes to do it themselves. And I remember one spring we were out there uh, cleaning the cistern and we found a dead cat in there. And that was pretty disgusting. And my grandparents were, you know, they were up there in age. So for them to not have clean water at that age was just, it was just something else. And it was really eye-opening. And, you know, that's not the only story that's out there. Um, In another community, they found a car battery, which is even more dangerous. Like, I mean, this would potentially, you know, cause that person a lot of harm. And mm. it's just stories like this that just stick out um, with these cisterns. And you're, this is, you're drinking the water from these cisterns, right? Yeah, we're drinking the water from it. Um, you know, we use it for cooking, bathing, cleaning. Uh, I mean, it's, it, we're, we're left with a certain amount every week. Uh, families get water truck to them once a week that seems to be the schedule that's pretty consistent and yeah they have to ration uh their water you know they can't do as much laundry as they would like to um you know they probably can't bathe and shower as much as they want to if you're you know showering every day um you know maybe for a family that's maybe once or twice a week that they're allowed so it's very, um, you know, it's very critical that we up, not only upgrade, you know, the water delivery, but we need to upgrade the plant so that it will allow um, people to use water 
um, to use it a little bit better and to help them, um, you know, if we get another pandemic, you know, something simple as washing hands wasn't an option for most people. So that's something that we really have to keep in the back of our minds going forward. Well, Melissa, here, I'm going to float an idea. Some people might find this controversial. I think a lot of people would support it. And I get your your feedback. I think we should shut down foreign aid in this country until every man, woman and child in all of our indigenous communities across this country, every single one has access to clean drinking water. Shut down foreign aid until we get that right. What do you think? I agree with that, you know, and I, like I said earlier, you know, I'm all for helping other countries, but we need to help the people here in our country first. And we need to ensure that, you know, they have a safe supply of water and that, you know, if another pandemic hits us, you know, it's not going to run through our communities like wildfire again, because that's one of the main reasons why it did. There, you know, water trucks that deliver water was potentially spreading COVID to the community. So we really need to fix this issue today. And it's not an issue that we can wait another year for. It's something that has to be done now. Uh, is it as simple as basically throwing money at the problem? Is, is that the issue? It's not a matter of money. Um, you know, it's a matter of political will. You know, there's a lot of if they decided to go into their departments and cut some of that red tape and, you know, make their departments function a little better, getting water to reserves, um, you know, updating their infrastructure, this would be a lot easier and it would be in, done in a timely manner. Um, you know, they really have to look at how their internal departments work and determine what can they speed up? Uh, what can they escalate? How can they do this? So I don't think it's a matter of money. I just think it's a matter of will and them wanting to do it. If people are interested and they want to track the the number of water advisories across this country on the, on the in the Indigenous communities, what was that website you gave again? Um, it was Indigenous Services Canada. And then if you look under, I believe it's water maintenance, um, under that section, that's where the graphs and the uh, information will come up. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're I, and I know many of my listeners, absolutely appalled at this uh, the state of affairs with it when it comes to uh, clean drinking water or lack thereof on uh, on our indigenous um, settlements across this country. Melissa, thank you so much. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Melissa Embarkey. Policy Analyst Outreach Coordinator, Indigenous Policy Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Art Moore is next from WND. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Curious item that uh, suddenly... There appears to be an enormous number of job openings at the highest level positions at the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health in the United States. Why is that? Why are people leaving en masse at the CDC and the NIH? Art Moore is an author at WND and the co-author of the best-selling book, See Something, Say Nothing. Art, welcome back. How are you? Hey, thank you, Richard. Doing fine, thanks. So why all these job openings? Why all these people leaving at the CDC and the NIH? It's very simple. Uh, they are 
more than frustrated, um, embarrassed, maybe that's a mild word, but just extremely upset with the fact that uh, these agencies, these top federal agencies in our country have not been doing good science. They've been doing bad science. And it's it's very costly. It's costly, uh, first of all, in terms of lives. It's costly to our nation, its economy, its livelihood. And uh, unfortunately, many of them have not spoken out. Uh, apparently, this is what we're talking about is uh, you know, a leaking of information to, uh, in this case, Dr. Marty McCary, who's been uh, you know, one of the, 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 the scientists uh, from elite institutions, in this case, Johns Hopkins University, who have been speaking out uh, very bold. But there are a lot of people within these federal agencies uh, who are afraid of losing their job if they speak out. And they're saying that uh, they're not allowed to speak to reporters to say uh, anything about you know, what's really happening with the vaccines, uh, whether or not masks are a good idea. Closing schools, is that a good idea? A lot of them obviously think it's not a good idea, but the official line says, no, we're going to shut down the schools. No, we're going to mandate masks and uh, they have to be quiet. Oh, I, I, I neglected to mention that this also uh, includes the, uh, I believe, the FDA. Uh, right. They're also leaving the FDA as well. So uh, th- so this is a basically a morale problem, right? People feel that the agencies that they're working for are not conducting good science. They're making bad decisions. Uh, in many cases, they're not, al- they're not allowed to speak out. So it's just it's a morale issue. It, it is. And, and, you know, it's been pretty clear over the past two years that there is this uh, this this battle going on behind the scenes. Uh, you've seen, for example, in a book by Dr. Scott Atlas, who is a very esteemed um, scientist at Stanford University, who for a time was uh, president, one of President Trump's coronavirus advisors. And he's written a book about what it was like behind the scenes. And he was just astonished that um, people like Dr. Deborah Burks, who just wrote a book. That's another story. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, that that these people had really become uh, political bureaucrats who were not really interested in the science. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Hmm. And um, I know that recently... 
um, Macri was on uh, with Tucker Carlson, basically saying that doctors, even doctors working at these federal agencies, are being muzzled and prevented from presenting their views on the uh, on the issues. When it came to the recent approval of uh, the um, vaccine for basically infants up into uh, up to five years old, um, was that one of the issues where experts at either the FDA or the CDC were uh, upset? It was. That, that's a huge one because it, it's really clear. I mean, anybody who just takes a little bit of time to look at, uh, you know, what even the New England Journal of Medicine uh, produces uh, studies there, you can see all across the board, there's a consensus that uh, SARS-CoV-2, the, the COVID-19 um, disease, is, is not a risk to children. And statistically, uh you know, the, the, the ones who, who have died, it's in the hundreds, and those are children who have already had serious issues. So for the average healthy child, this disease is not a threat. And yet we're going to uh, push on uh, them these vaccines that we know through the trials, through the Pfizer trials, we know have serious adverse uh, risks. And, and so uh, when, when you're talking about kids in particular, it's, it's just a, it's a travesty and uh this has really upset many of these scientists who are are watching this happen, watching the, the Fauci's and and uh, Rochelle Walensky, who is the head of the CDC, go out there on TV on these morning shows, you know, where parents are watching and uh, saying, hey, you know, if you're if you're a good mom, if you're a good dad, you're going to get your kid vaccinated. Do we have any handle on how many people are leaving the NIH and the CDC uh, I mean, are there, for example, are there are there staff shortages now as a result? Yeah, I, I don't know that we have necessarily the numbers, uh, but yes, that's what they're saying is there are staff shortages that are resulting from that. All right, uh, Art, we're going to take a time out when we come back. I want to talk about another uh, story. This is a study that appears to uh, tie the COVID booster shot to a startling spike in excess deaths. Uh, where researchers are examining data from uh, one of the world's most vaccinated nations. Art Moore stays with us from WND, co-author of the best-selling book, See Something, Say Nothing. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Hey, welcome back. Just a reminder... Coming up at the near the tail end of the program, True North journalist Ali Canten-Nantel will be here. Well, it, not, he won't be here, literally. We're revisiting a conversation from Thursday of last week that I thought was kind of timely and that we should play it again. Um, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown has announced he's uh, seeking re-election in the upcoming mayoral race after deciding that he would not, I guess, continue to fight uh, his disqualification from the leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada. I guess he's going to still uh, take some legal action, but he's not, he's basically decided, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. He's not getting back in the race. And so he's now going to refocus his attention on running for mayor. Uh, But um, last week came the report that there were at least four Brampton city councillors, including, I believe, two deputy mayors, who have asked the RCMP to come in and investigate some of the uh, the mayor's financial 
shenanigans, perhaps, is the word. So we'll, uh, we'll hear from Ali again. Right now, Art Moore stays with us from WND, and we're uh, going to talk now about a, a new study that's just come out, which appears to tie the COVID booster shot to a startling spike in excess deaths. This is occurring in New Zealand, which is one of the world's most vaccinated nations. Um, so, Art, the, uh, the study that found booster shots were associated with up to a 10% uh, spike in excess deaths. Let's first define some terms. What do we mean by excess deaths? Sure. In any one year, uh, researchers anticipate there will be a certain number uh, of deaths. And excess deaths uh, is always, or, or usually, it's an indicator of some extraordinary event. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, during 2020, uh, when COVID uh, hit hardest, um, we saw excess deaths related to uh, COVID itself. Uh, but, uh, you know, s- since then, um, with the Omicron variants, uh, the rate of death has gone down drastically. And uh, something like a 90% you know, less chance of hospitalization or death. And so there has to be another uh, factor and uh, this researcher in New Zealand, he's a New Zealander himself. Um, he simply was looking at uh, weekly government data. So uh, it was, you know, in some ways simple to to analyze there. There's the data right there. And, and he was able to, to drill down and differentiate between the, the vaccinated, unvaccinated, fully vaccinated, you know, people who uh, had, you know, three shots, four shots and uh uh, he, he, he found something that we've seen in other nations. I mean, the data in other nations uh, shows, tells a similar story. And it's, it's this idea that uh, has been observed that uh, in the two weeks after uh, people get shots, it's acknowledged that there is, is a weakness in, in natural immunity and uh, people become more vulnerable. And then after that, um, there's all different kinds of ideas about what's going on. But I think there's this general idea that is circulated among uh, scientists that uh, uh, the more you get vaccinated, the, the weaker your immune system becomes. Right. And these studies are not necessarily showing causation. They are showing correlation. And right. that, that should be a red flag and certainly should warrant further investigation. So the study... Uh, was by uh, an economics professor at a university in Hamilton, New Zealand. His name is John Gibson. What were the specifics of this study? What did they find vis-a-vis excess deaths uh, in the in the uh, those that had received the booster in the country? Yeah, so he was looking at different age groups, and 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 so he looked at the age groups that were most likely to use the boosters, the older age groups, and he he found uh, as much as a ten percent point rise in excess uh, mortality and and you know the, the way that you so as you say you don't always know for sure if it's causation but you, you look at uh the younger age groups and and you find there's no excess mortality there and uh so so you can there's different ways that you can you can come down to a pretty good uh conclusion and find that uh there there is a, a connection between the boosters and the excess deaths. So 16 excess deaths per 100,000 booster doses. Um, that's just in New Zealand. Um, so if we were to 
I guess, extrapolate that out to, to over the whole the whole world. Do we have any idea on how many excess deaths worldwide we're looking at? Yeah, I think he, he looked at uh, the numbers and figured out it was, if I remember correctly, something like 300,000 worldwide. And that's that's just a guess. Um, and, and, and based on New Zealand, which, you know, I mean, other countries have different factors and, and the number may be more. Uh, but it's interesting you know, when you look at New Zealand. So we know New Zealand was one of the most highly vaccinated countries. And being an island country, they thought this idea of zero COVID strategy would would work. That is, you try to eliminate it completely. And, and China actually had that that strategy. And to a certain extent, it's been adopted by Western nations. And uh, we, we found that and early on, there were researchers saying that, that this is a crazy idea. But it just once the once the horse is out of the barn, by the time we understood what was really happening with this pandemic, it was it's too late to 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 even think about a, a zero COVID strategy. In other words, eventually it's going to go through the whole population. And, and you have to think of different strategies. Uh, but this idea that New Zealand had of zero COVID is what led to these draconian uh, uh lockdown uh, and, and other kinds of, of measures. Australia, of course, infamously, we saw all of the, the, you know, the Twitter videos from there of the horrible things that they did. But that all was uh, under this idea of a zero COVID strategy. So even in zero COVID New Zealand, you know, we've seen huge spike in, in cases. And then now this indication that, uh, there are, are, are deaths related to the vaccine itself. On a, uh, a related note, another story I saw, I th- I'm not sure if it was WND, probably, uh, Haiti, a country, uh, you know, the developing world of Haiti, 1.3%. That was their vaccination rate. Basically, nobody took the COVID vaccine in Haiti, and they had one of the lowest uh, COVID death rates in the world. So that's uh, there's some more yeah. food for thought. All right, Art, how, how do we get a copy of See Something, Say Nothing? Sure. Uh, best place, I think, is Amazon.com. And just just type in the search, see something, say nothing. All right, Art, you have a great rest of the week. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. You too. Thank you, Richard. Bye. Art Moore, author at WND. Please support independent media, WND.com. All right. Patrick Brown, mayor of Brampton, getting set to run again, but he's potentially in some more hot water. The city council, there are at least four members have asked the RCMP to come in and investigate what they feel are some uh, financial shenanigans on the mayor's part. That story's next. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Four Brampton city councillors, including two deputy mayors, calling on the RCMP to investigate the financial dealings of Mayor Patrick Brown. Ali Canton-Nantel is a journalist with True North. Ali, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Very well. Thank you. So, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, um, in hot water with some city councillors, some Brampton city councillors, which includes two deputy mayors what are they alleging 
While the councillors are alleging a series of unethical behaviour from Patrick Brown at the municipal level, so that means as, in his role as mayor of Brampton, uh, they've uh, previously voted to investigate the mayor and have forensic investigations, and they were supposed to discuss uh, these investigations at the next city council meeting. Now, they allege that Brown and his uh, the councillors that support him have shut down uh, the meeting four times in a row to avoid uh, these sort of discuss these discussions amid his leadership race because uh, you know if you're running to be leader of a conservative party and there's all this news about the bad stuff you're doing at the municipal level that wouldn't be good uh, that's something that Brown of course has denied so they claim that since Brown is not cooperating uh, with investigations they want the federal authorities to so the RCMP to look into the mayor's conduct including financial dealings which uh, they, they find to be uh, questionable and a bit sketchy all right. And these are just allegations. We need to, to, to be clear. Can we get maybe into some more of the specifics of the allegations? Some of this, uh, some of these, I think, involve someone who worked on his campaign, um, on his federal campaign for conservative the, the leadership race, uh, was also receiving money from the city. So there are multiple um, allegations that have been out in the media, and I personally have heard of others which are you know unverified at this point. Uh, so the the main allegation that was in the news that was not related, I guess, to the city was that the one that got him disqualified is an allegation from a, a senior veteran conservative uh, um, organizer that was on his campaign that said that Patrick Brown with her did discussed a third-party agreement uh, to pay her, which, you know, would uh, break finance laws. Uh, the councillors pointed out that there's um, somebody working in Brown's inner circle uh, that also worked on his federal campaign that received uh, over $500,000 from City Hall. And they say there are other questionable contracts and evidence that links some of um, the, the mayor's uh, duties to the uh, federal race. And as reported by uh, Rebel News, Rebel News broke the story a few weeks ago. Yes, David um, Menzies, yes. David Menzies, uh, an incredible journalist, and uh, they, they alleged that uh, multiple city of Branton employees, and they, they took pictures of their cars, and they had, you know, the license plates, and they had their their their, uh, their, their, their positions in the city that are working on the leadership campaign during work hours, which would violate Branton's rules. So overall, there, there's, a, there's um, a lot of in, uh, allegations. Most they have not been proven, uh, and Brown denies them. But we should also know that in the past, uh, Brown has, has a history of unethical conduct. So is this unusual for a city council or members of a city council to call in the RCMP? I'm, I'm just why would it be the RCMP rather than the OPP uh, or, I don't know, Brampton, uh, Peel Region Police? I, I would assume, of course, I have not been in the business for a while, so I'm not sure if really other cases. It's the first time I hear of city councils wanting to call in the RCMP. I mean, that's a pretty major uh, investigative force. Uh, I would assume that the reason why they want the RCMP is because we're talking about federal matters. But they also have asked the Ontario Attorney General to also look into some of these allegations, uh, including those at the, the provincial level. Uh, sorry, the municipal level that would kind of more involve the province. So um, the, the city councillors have asked or, or, or they've talked about the need to bring an outside authority. Have they made a formal request to the RCMP uh, to begin an investigation? Well, they've asked the RCMP in a letter to uh, 
begin begin an investigation. As of now, it, it doesn't appear that there is any sort of investigation. It's important to note that, like any other political bodies, there's always a political aspect to it, uh, and, and something like that does sure bring out a lot of tension. But I do think, at the same time, uh, you know, there's a lot of very serious matter that's being alleged and. Uh, I would doubt that somebody would make up all of these allegations. So I, I think it, it wouldn't be unreasonable for uh, an, an authoritative uh, body to to look into that, to see what's true, what's false, and, and to you know take action accordingly. And, and meanwhile, is the mayor um, Patrick Brown still refusing to meet uh, to to uh, to meet at city hall to to hold city council meetings? There's no city council. Uh, meetings at this point that may change in the future. He's hinted at that, I believe. He's also, um, while he hasn't said he's going to run for re-election, he's been retweeting articles uh, that say over, you know, lots of people in Brampton want him to run again, which is, is a little questionable because, uh, you know, to given some of his, some of his conduct, but uh, we, we will see. He says he's consulting his investigation and there's already people that are, have announced that they 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 will challenge him uh, in the upcoming municipal race, which uh, his deadline to file is August nineteenth. All right, and again, important to note that uh, Mayor Brown has denied wrongdoing, uh, both in terms of the uh, the conservative leadership race and uh, in his role as mayor of Brampton. So we'll uh, follow this with interest. Ellie, thank you so much as always for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Ellie Canten Nantel, True North, TNC.news. Please support independent media. All right. That's it for me. Just a reminder before I go, coming up on tomorrow's program, of course, we have our homeschool advisor, Ruth Kaskowski. She'll be here, and we're working on some other terrific stories. Rest assured, it'll be a great show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody and Declan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.